You're listening to Conversations with John Anderson, featuring Clon Kitchen. Clon Kitchen is my guest today. He's a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Previously, he was National Security Advisor to Senator Ben Sass of Nebraska, and also the Staff Director of the National Security and International Trade and Finance Subcommittee for the Senate Committee on Banking, Housing and Urban Affairs. Before his time on the Hill here in Washington, Clon spent more than 15 years in the United States intelligence community, working on counter-terrorism, counter-proliferation, covert action and cyber issues. Clon's personal research focused on the intersection of technology and national security, with particular interest in artificial intelligence, autonomous weapons systems, space and intelligent issues. He's also a frequent media commentator on privacy issues on social media and the tech industry. And he's, he and I are going to seek to explain in layman's terms how our world is being turned upside down by the technology revolution. So welcome, Clon. Thank you for having me. Thanks for your time. That's very good of you. Can we start, uh, you know, you think of the way the internet, the iPhone, artificial intelligence, um, robotics, all of these things that are with us, that are coming at us, shaping the world. Can you give us a feel for just how big, for want of a better word, these tech monsters actually are? So you're right. Um, I think most people feel intuitively uh, and, and increasingly see that modern technology, emerging technologies are touching virtually every aspect of our life, um, economically, socially, politically. It's how we communicate with one another. It's how we do the work that we do, whether we're a farmer or a businessman of some sort. Um, and so the, the prevalence of technology, people, people feel that. What isn't often understood is the underlying um, span of, of that business in terms of uh, its impact on the rest of the world. <clears throat> so in the context of the United States, the fundamental economic driver of, of our prosperity is the technology industry. Um, and its reach, as I was just saying, is, is only expanding further and further into our lives. Um, certainly in the wake of the, the recent pandemic, um, what was already a growing industry in terms of um, its presence has now just gotten a massive shot in the arm and is even more prevalent as we think about remote work and, yeah. and those types of activities. Um, nowhere in, in, in terms of the issues that I focus on is this more clear than in the geopolitical realm, though. Um, these companies operate on a global scale. Uh, whether it be their supply and logistics uh, lines, the human capital, so the, the, the employees that they attract come from around the globe, uh, and they deploy those employees around the globe. And then these companies are operating at a scale where the, the pure economics of their business rival the, um, the GDP of nations. And so all of these things are combining to create an industry and even individual companies who enjoy um, a level of influence, 
a level of economic prosperity and increasingly interests that were previously reserved only for the nation state. And we're trying to figure that out because it has huge implications um, for how governments and how industry and how individual citizens operate. One of the things that strikes me, there's a whole lot to unpack here, mm. is the extraordinary wealth of the brilliant people behind much of this stuff, you know, the tech squillionaires and the people immediately under them, huge numbers of people who are paid massive salaries at a time when in most of the Western world, including America, uh, real wages are being squeezed, living standards are actually beginning to drop. Um, that seems to me to raise all sorts of questions about how they're perceived by the broader community and the role that they might be able to play with all of that wealth and all of that influence. Um, if we just consider nation by nation in the first instance, so here in America, those very, very wealthy people with a lot of capacity to influence culturally, politically, economically, and yet people seem to be relatively happy for that to happen. A bit like, there's almost a parallel with the, the Great Depression, when the celluloid heroes made a fortune uh, out of Hollywood at a time when the American people were doing it really tough. There is this disconnect, isn't there? Mm. You've got so, this sort of more and more massive wealth in fewer and fewer hands, and that's challenging in some ways our sort of accepted social norms about a, you know, a reasonably flat uh, a sort of uh, a income levels and, and or at least some sort of equity about the whole thing. Yeah, so there's a couple of dynamics there that that are at play, and and it's hard to navigate what the kind of total outcome of that is. So, uh, for example, you're exactly right when you say that uh, an increasingly large portion of our national wealth is uh, congregating in an increasingly small uh, portion of the population. Um, when we talk about the tech gazillionaires, uh, th there's no one who's a more kind of clear example of that type of wealth concentration. That's undeniably true. Uh, it's also the case that the gap between our most wealthy and both our middle class and our lower class, that that gap has expanded significantly. So back in the 50s, uh, you know, the, the distance between a factory worker's salary and the CEO of Ford's salary was one thing. <clears throat> the, the difference between, you know, the salary or income or net worth of someone like a Mark Zuckerberg or a Jeff Bezos and a, and a factory worker in one of Amazon's, you know, shipping uh, warehouses, that's an entirely different category of, of, of distance between those two things. So that's certainly true. At the same time, um, these same industries and, and technologies have enabled a level of general income distribution and wealth creation that's unparalleled in the history of man. And, and I'll again, I'll turn back to um, the pandemic um, scenario. It was our technology industry that enabled us to fairly um, efficiently and, and rapidly pivot as a society to figure out a way to work, um, even in the midst of, you know, being locked in our homes for a little while. Now that only applied to a, a particular portion 
uh, of our of our population, so people who are in the so-called knowledge economy or kind of white-collar jobs. Certainly, service industry individuals did not get to experience this. They were hit very hard. And so all of that to say, um, technology, as is often the case, is this double-edged sword. Yeah. But your broader point and your fundamental point, I think, is, is the key point, and that is that the technology industry and those who lead it have a growing and almost outsized level of influence on the way our entire society is evolving and being reshaped. And sometimes that's to our benefit, but increasingly we're aware of the trade-offs that come with that and there's a growing discomfort with it. So if we start, I suppose, with the proposition that technology is morally neutral, it becomes a question of what you do with it. You've really got sort of two extremes here. You've got those who are warning, look, this is going to become a dystopia where we're all enslaved to robots and to you know, the controllers of the tech themselves. On the other hand, there are those who are saying, of course, that this can lead to a new utopia where so many menial tasks are taken away from us. We can access everything from magnificently enhanced medical services through to ways of uh, living our lives uh, uh, in a whole range of ways. The point is, in a way, though, that the technology is not standing still. It continues to move very fast. How do we get a handle on trying to make certain that it works to our advantage? Now, I know that's a very big question, but it's a thing that you grapple with, and we, we, we can explore what it means for individuals who, who are probably, you know, I know in, my, in Australia, probably in America, one point of interface for them is they kind of get that there are now lots of people who can use that technology to invade their privacy, to learn all sorts of things about them. These tech companies know an astonishing amount and they're building that knowledge all the time. No, that's right. Um, so I, I reject both of the extremes that technology is going to lead to a utopia or that it's going to lead to a dystopia. Um, and I think the history of, of the world and, and of technology show that uh, evolving technologies bring both benefits and harms and that how we arrange our societies is the way that we um, maximize the opportunity to, to realize those benefits and minimize the opportunity of those worst um, costs to, uh, to affect us. <clears throat> um, as you, I, I, a great example. Take something um, uh, like, like biotechnology. As, as you mentioned, the, the field of medicine is on the cusp of a type of revolution that's honestly hard for me to even articulate just how fundamental and how significant um, some of these technological breakthroughs are going to be in terms of the ability to do tailored medicine. Uh, to um, have meaningful impact and perhaps even one day the eradication of things like you know, cancer or genetic defects or things like that. We're not there yet, um, but, but those technologies are advancing. For the vast majority of people, that's going to be a resounding uh, benefit. At the same time, um, it introduces economic disruptions in the sense of, well, what happens if a, a, a doctor essentially becomes a technician because an artificial intelligence and even perhaps a robot is actually carrying out many of the functions that a doctor previously did. 
uh, well, that has a, that has an economic and vocational impact that we're not we're not thinking through yet. Um, or, uh, in the worst case scenario, what if a hostile foreign government uses those same biotechnologies to create new and novel and awful um, bio weapons or chemical weapons? So. These things have, have, have always characterized, the double-edged sword nature have, have, has always characterized technology. And one of the reasons why it feels like these challenges are proliferating and coming at us more quickly is because they're proliferating and they're coming at us more quickly. So uh, technology touches everything. And so it's not that we haven't had technological disruption in the past, we certainly have. It's that the scale and the speed of the disruption, I think, is what's unprecedented. There is no aspect of, of human life that's not being touched by this and where the technology innovation is not occurring at such a rapid rate that it's disorienting. And among those who are the most disoriented are individual citizens yep. and governments. Yeah, and, and we as individual citizens look to government to try and create a framework where this stuff is used wisely where we can be safe about our privacy, safe about our secure, feel safe in, you know, in, in terms of, of our daily lives. Well, and yet for governments to grapple with this raises immense challenges. Well, and it's a, it's a difficult proposition. I mean, on, on the one hand, um, the efficiencies offered of, by technology. Um, so, you know, I, I prefer a small but capable government. I, I think that government should do a narrow set of things, but those things which it should do, it should do very well. So things like the national defense. <clears throat> Technology offers a great deal of opportunity um, for, for the type of efficiency and capability that I think is, is well within, in, in the United States case, the, the, the constitutional parameters of, of government. And, and I understand why the government um, would, would seek to realize those benefits. That's, that's a fine thing. Um, however, in our uh, haste to embrace these technologies, and I mean this now at society-wide, not just government, we have ultimately innovated faster than we can secure. So in the United States, I, arguably, we are the most technologically leveraged nation on the planet. What that means for most people most days is that our life is pretty great. We have amazing healthcare. We carry around these computers in our pockets that enable us to do things that were just unimaginable, literally, you know, a decade ago. Um, and, and our lives are really, really pleasant. Um, and we're economically prospering as well. At the same time, what we're also waking up to is the realization that we made a trade and we didn't know we were making it in terms of um, our susceptibility to be manipulated our susceptibility to be known, our susceptibility uh, to be threatened. And um, in the context of, of government, that presents itself in, in you know, cybersecurity threats to our critical infrastructure. Uh, as we automate systems, they also become more uh, susceptible to disruption and to um, other types of cyber attack, uh, ransomware attacks, that kind of thing. And then as individual citizens, um, you know, that, that wonderful application that knows what I need it right when I need it without me having to ask for it that I love. Well, it, it knows that because it knows me. It knows where I'm currently standing. It knows what I'm currently doing. It knows what information I need and it serves it up to me. Well, that's not magic. 
that's based on data. And consumers don't often understand the trades that they've made. All that to say, all of these, these, this kind of fact pattern that I'm trying to lay out, we're becoming more sophisticated and more aware of them. And our societies are beginning to struggle now and refine what is our contract with tech and with those who make that technology and with those who govern us. And so we have a, a, a type of renegotiation of the social contract in the context of technology. Perhaps a way to illustrate that, because I'd like to tease this out a bit more, is to say that uh, we're now aware that the Chinese are rolling out what they call their social credit scheme. Mm. Now, the social credit scheme is extraordinary in that they amass an astonishing amount of data on individual citizens. It's all collated by central agencies. They spend more on internal security, we understand, than they do on defence, which is really saying something. Mm. And I ask you questions about who the CPP fears most, I suspect. Uh, and you're born with a certain number of credits and the numbers go up or down according to whether you're a good citizen. They can monitor absolutely everything with hundreds of millions of closed circuit television sets with low level but, but massive amounts of artificial intelligence. They can pull all of this together and people unbelievably will sit around tables, I'm told now, saying, I've got a thousand credits, how many have you got? Without realising how they've been captured. I suspect in the West we're more cynical and a little bit better informed. We're aware of those dangers. But as one observer put it to me, there's almost as much data floating around about citizens in the West, particularly with the big tech companies. It's just that it's not collated and used against people by a sort of centralised government-backed approach. That immediately raises the question, doesn't it, of how we protect people? Because as you say, these tech companies over time build up an astonishing picture of where you've been, your browsing history, I suppose, your, your financial situation, your relationships, your business connections. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And knowledge is power, as they say. If it's misused, how do we get the legislative framework right and keep it right so mm -hmm. that you don't get mission creep? Well, those are big questions. Um, Maybe a, a couple of preliminary points on that. Um, one, number one, everyone who happens to hear this conversation or watch this, this conversation should understand that there's a portion of this where we're not going to roll it back. Mm. Going forward, you will be known. Yeah. It's simply a matter of by whom and for what purpose. And I find that disconcerting, as, as many uh, others do. Um, but as I, as I was saying previously, we have made some trades without fully understanding the cost of those trades, but we're not gonna be able to undo them. Um, so that's one. Number two, the system that you described in China, the social credit system, which is part of a, a broader, I think, um, model of governance that China is, is trying to pioneer where they, <clears throat> they combine the wealth generation, the economic stability and strength of their form of managed capitalism with the security and stability of totalitarianism and where they, they understand technology to be the key enabling capability for both of those aims. And so when we think about the social credit score, the Chinese, the, the Chinese Communist Party believes that uh, society can be optimized and that it can compel individual citizens to um, align their actions toward that ideal outcome. 
and they're not afraid to use the, the, the power of government to, to do that type of compulsory uh, action. And so here's, a, here's an example for, for some who may not fully understand what this looks like. Here's, here's just a, a fictional example of what this might look like. Um, an individual Chinese citizen could uh, jaywalk, could mm -hmm. illegally cross the street. Mm -hmm. um, well, because of CCT and, uh, or CCTV cameras and, and other surveillance, um, the Chinese government immediately recognizes that an individual mm -hmm. has done that, is able to deduct the fine for jaywalking from their connected account before they finish crossing the street. And their uh, social credit score has gone down by you know, one point because they're a jaywalker and you know, that's not what they're looking for. That's, a, that's a, a small example of the type of awareness and control that the CCP is aiming for and is arguably very close to, to realizing. So that's obviously problematic and frightening. So, so if they wrote an article critical of Beijing, for example, they might not lose one point, they'd lose several oh, hundred points. Well, and, and not just several hundred points, but what that would actually translate to is that, okay, and you're no longer able to travel outside of your immediate region. You're no longer able to compete for particular jobs. Your family member may not get into that school. No, it's, it's, it's massive. It, 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 is, it is nothing short of technologically enabled state manipulation and management of a citizenry. And yet, as I mentioned a moment ago, as John Lennox told me in one of these conversations, he said he now understands that there are Chinese people who will sit around the table bragging about how many points they've got Certainly. because it gives them access without. So at one level, I mean, how could you be so beholden to government? And yet at another level, it becomes attractive. It's a really interesting thing to think about. Well, it's in the name, social credit, right? So it, it's not a surprise that um, this thing that enables upward mobility and freedom of movement and economic opportunity, that these, these credit points become what they're called. So they're, they're, a so, they're a type of, they're a means of, of measuring and comparing social capital between each other. So in the West, uh, it's certainly in Washington, D.C., uh, it might be you know, the, the title of your, of your, of your vocation you know, what, what, what's on your business card. It could be how much money's in your bank account. Well, in China, they're arranging their society in such a way as to where the number of social credits is, is a meaningful way of determining your place in society, how high or low. But, you know, one, one of the points I wanted to make is, so in the context of, of, of China, this is a system that's being forcibly enabled by the government. This will be implemented. In the context of the United States, my great concern is that we will choose this, that it won't be forced on us by government. So we'll choose to place ourselves under those sorts of frameworks voluntarily. Precisely. For the social and economic benefits that are, that are promised, right? Um, so we, um, it won't be the government who compels us to sign up for this or that application. Um, We'll do it because we want to watch a, a, a particular funny video and, and it's a way of, of engaging. So you take something like a TikTok or, or some other social, social media application. Um, it enables the same thing, right? So the data collection of that application is you know, consummate with anything that the Chinese government is able to do. Mm. But it's not going back to the Chinese government. In the case of TikTok, it is, but that's a separate conversation. Um, but it's going back to an industry that increasingly collates all of this information and then crafts the world around us 
to meet what it understands us to want and to need. And it moves us, so in, in the case of, of media consumption, it moves us into these increasingly thick bubbles of media consumption that are self-reinforcing and where we tend not to hear alternative perspectives or critical perspectives of, of our own. Um, that has been a choice that we are making both as individuals and as a society, and we're beginning to see the negative outcomes of those things. So while in China, it's something that's being forced by the government, in the West, I am increasingly concerned that we will choose that type of, um, of managed life, and I don't think that will be good for us as a society. You've thought about these things a lot. It would strike at the heart of the very idea of the, the American model of the Republic, would it not? Mm. Small government, let us get on with our lives, you've alluded to it already, where we voluntarily move away from our sort of foundational approaches in the West, uh, and, and instead of, uh, if you like, um, government being downstream, we increasingly place it upstream in our lives. Well, and you've got this sort of alliance, I guess you'd say, between big tech and government. So the relationship between big tech and government itself becomes critical in finding a way forward as well. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, so I'm, I'm less inclined to view the relationship between tech and government as a... Um, and I don't think you were describing it this way. Uh, I'm not worried about a conspiracy per se. No, neither am I. Right. Um, but it is quite natural for centers of power mm. to migrate toward each other and yep. to leverage each other yeah. to amass greater power and influence. Right. Mm. I mean, this is this is at the heart of the American um, kind of fundamental skepticism of of government power. Mm. Um, and we have always in in, in the United States. Um, we have always been skeptical of, um, of, of kind of crony capitalism, of, of industry and government working cooperatively against uh, individuals to, to amass power and influence. Um, at the same time, one of the challenges that we face is that the capabilities that are going to be essential for modern governance, from everything to just the basic provision of basic services, yeah. all the way to national defense, I'm sure we'll talk about this further, those capabilities are increasingly being developed in the private sector for commercial applications. And the government has essentially been disrupted. Uh, it, its ability to know what's going on in the nation, its ability to meet the, the needs of the citizenry um, has diminished greatly uh, because government in our system is deliberately not agile. The, the, the US constitutional system has, has made a deliberate choice to emphasize a um, uh, a, a steady form of government, not an agile form of government. Um, but in, in the modern context, we are beginning to realize that, um, that, that industry is the one who has an understanding of the citizenry and who is able to uh, engage that citizenry in a way that was previously reserved only for the state. And so we have this, again, this kind of renegotiation of the social contract um, that is, it feels incredibly disruptive. I'm confident that we'll find a way forward on it, um, but the disruption that we all feel is real. One of the staggering aspects of, of American uh, national uh, performance lies in the, you know, your capacity to innovate. I mean, for years, you just absolutely swamped uh, the sort of patent application process across the world. Innovation found its home in America and the best and brightest of your own people and from around the world came to 
America and in more recent times Silicon Valley as it's called. Um, it strikes me as in a sense the goose that uh, you know we may be killing, killing the goose that lays the golden egg here that very innovation is not as likely to flourish in a society that somehow becomes dulled and satiated by looking for the comforts and the upside uh, of uh, all of the benefits that tech can bring us without being alert to the downsides. Mm -hmm. There's a real danger here of us having a, a very perverse outcome, I would have thought. Do you, any thoughts on that? So it is often the case, historically speaking, that um, as societies become more comfortable, they become more lax and less um, sophisticated and aware and, and, and protective of those things that enabled them to become secure and, and comfortable in the first place. And so there's a sense of, um, of, of a perception of inevitability. And so in the United States, it is certainly the case that amongst both our citizenry and our political leaders, uh, and certainly even in our industry leaders, um, there's an assumption that the type of uh, economic diversity and innovative uh, dynamism that we've enjoyed that have enabled us to, to secure the place that we, that we have uh, in the global order, that that's somehow inevitable. And that is a mistake. Um, those things are the result of deliberate choices and of a strong proclivity to defend and to protect both individual liberty and freedom, but then also to continually be refining that, that tension um, between um, uh, economic dynamism and creativity and agility and responsibility. Um, and, and that is never easy. Uh, I think one of the reasons why it feels so challenging now and why I think we intuitively, many of us at least, intuitively understand that the balance isn't correct, it goes back to the point that I made earlier in terms of just the sheer scale and speed of, of disruption that's occurring across our society enabled by technology. We recognize, okay, something's unbalanced and, and we're trying to find ways, certainly in the United States, to rebalance that equation appropriately without killing the undermining or the, the underlying dynamism because we recognize that it is the case that the, the key to our economic and, and even social thriving going forward is, is maintaining this industry and, and allowing it to grow and to thrive. But it is equally important that the leaders of that industry recognize that they don't only get influence and wealth, they also amass responsibility. And it's incumbent upon them to understand those responsibilities in a more sophisticated way and to um, administer those responsibilities uh, in a way that um, is in keeping with their level of influence and the opportunity that our system has afforded them, both in terms of wealth and, um, and opportunity. Now, this is a very interesting area to explore because, in essence, what I hear you saying is that you're going to need goodwill and wisdom from government and from legislators grappling with these difficult issues, often incredibly hard to understand, and goodwill, even, dare I say it, patriotism and a commitment to human flourishing, if I can put it that way, from the tech giants. And up front, the cynic would say, well, we've never trusted government less. They'll only look at the short term where they can get gain, 
will they act in the in the, in the best interests of our, our, our country? And you, you know, by extension, uh, that same parameter set of parameters applies across the Western world, I suspect. And then you look at the tech giants and you think, gee, they sound very politically correct. Uh, they don't sound like they particularly love uh, and admire uh, the American experiment, for example. How confident can we be? We'll come to Russia in a moment and the Ukrainian situation where there's some very encouraging signs, but how confident are you that there's the goodwill, the intelligence, if I can put it this way, the cultural grounding and the uh, underpinnings of democratic freedoms to ensure those two people can, those two groupings can really get this right for a vibrant, uh, flourishing democracy in the future. So you're accurately describing my aspiration that that type of um, of wisdom and 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 care and and kind of a cooperative spirit both in government and in industry and and the third category of just the citizenry like that's got to be a virtuous circle there that that is what I'm aiming for it it is I think historically speaking what has enabled us to get to where we are now and it is what we will need to thrive going forward I think you're also accurately describing how many of the um, underlying variables that have enabled us to do that in the past are eroding in in our societies. Trust in the government, responsibility in industry, uh, a knowledgeable and engaged citizenry. These, the, I mean, the, the, the trends here are all very clear, unfortunately, and they're not in the right direction. Um, and so uh, while I'm not a cynic, uh, I understand the cynics' response, and I, and I think that they're they're not making it up. It, those are real concerns. I'm not cynical, however, um, because while all of those things are true, it is also the case that um, our collective interests are bound up in one another, and so we have a, a real uh, safe expectation that self-interest will kick in and will ultimately motivate us to make the necessary changes um, uh, for, for operating in a, in a coherent way going forward. It is an open question, however, as to how costly it will be to get us to that point and, and if we will do it in time. So while I, I choose to be optimistic on these things because the Western democratic system of organizi organizing, organizing society and, and, and government is far from perfect but there is no system that is more capable of evolving and changing and adapting when those three elements of, of, of kind of the private sector, the public sector, and the citizenry are aligned. There's just nothing that compares. And so I think that, um, that if we can come to a common understanding of the challenges, of the opportunities, and of our shared fate, well then I'm very confident in our ability to respond to that. That's what I spend my time doing. That, that's why I do the work that I do, is I'm trying to convince those three categories or those entities, those building blocks of society, of those shared interests and of our capacity to respond. So we have a number of headwinds. Uh, I'm, I'm very clear-eyed and, and, and honest about those, um, but not to the point to where I forget and am somehow kind of cowed. Um, because I have high confidence in our people. I have high confidence in a free people who, who have a capacity to still see good, as, as, as muddled as our vision seems to be sometimes. 
Um, Those in the West, we're not the only good people on earth, but we have have a moral foundation and, and and a philosophical and even a theological framework that understands notions of good. And while we debate the edges of those notions, we still have an idea of it and we know that it's preferred and we're pursuing it. We disagree on how to do it, but we're pursuing it. I think that gives us enough of a common bond to make the types of improvement that I think are necessary uh, for our nations to thrive. And certainly it gives us a, a more of a leg up than our geopolitical competitors. So China doesn't have this. Um, I don't think that the, the philosophical, the civic, um, I don't think that they have sufficient stores of those things to outcompete us if we can get our heads straight. But again, the cynic would, would rightly ask, but are we going to get our heads straight and are we going to get it straight soon enough? And there I have to say, well, that is the question. And I'm doing what I can to make sure that we can. Are you thinking, are you seeing that, 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 that the things that you're trying to do are being aided by the concentration of the minds, I suppose you could say, that the whole Russian-Ukrainian situation is brought about because the tech giants have had to make decisions here about who they'll help, who they'll silence, who they'll allow to talk, what their role will be? Can uh, we be encouraged by what's happened uh, in what, this, this area of response uh, in the West to what the Russians have appallingly done to the Ukraine? So I am surprised at how the West, frankly, coalesced so quickly uh, mm. in, in facing what uh, Vladimir Putin was doing mm. in, uh, in Ukraine. Um, I'm very pleased with the way we've done that. I would like us to do more, and I, I, we can talk about that. Um, but no, I think, I think how private tech industry has participated in this conflict is a great illustration of the point I'm trying to make. So I'll give you a very concrete example of what tech has done. Um, in, in the weeks preceding the Russian invasion to Ukraine, um, it became clear that the, the Russian government was going to be attacking the critical infrastructure and even the government systems of Ukraine via cyber means and other more um, kinetic you know, missiles and things like that. But one of the things that happened very quickly was the Ukrainian government turned to uh, the Microsoft Corporation. And they said, all of our government systems are what's called on-premise, meaning all of our data is sitting on a real server in this building right down here. And if this building or this server blows up, all our data is gone. That is unacceptable. Will you help us? And Microsoft was able to flow in personnel and capabilities and migrate the entire Ukrainian government into the cloud so that it is no longer in a, a single like physical location, but it's now distributed and safe, even if one server gets blown up. They were able to do that in a matter of weeks. Um, so two points there. One, uh, facing an existential crisis, a government turned to a private sector actor to, to help it solve this, this kind of critical problem. This reflects this yes. interdependence again, but that then, we're going to have to live with and make work. That's right. Well, and that, again, that, that the industry actually was offering a very real solution, that they actually had mm. something of mm. benefit to offer. And, and they were prepared to offer it. Yes, and they're prepared. To, okay, and so that brings me to point number two. Sorry. <laughs> that that was something that the United States government couldn't do. Yeah. 
right? The Ukrainian government couldn't do it. The United States government couldn't do it. Microsoft was able to do it, right? It was the one who had the capacity, the capability, the expertise, the systems, the server farms, all of it. They could do it and they did it which is important, not just from a, a way of illustrating, you know, kind of a lack of capacity on the government, but that freed the United States government and other Western governments to do the things that they could do, right? So we all, you know, labor under the, under the burden of limited resources, limited time, limited energy, limited focus. Well, industry was able to step in, assume a portion of the burden that then freed governments to focus on other portions of the burden and to do those things more effectively. That is an amazing example of a cooperative effort between government and industry that had real tangible impact on not just you know, the, the, the continuation of a government, but the freedom and the safety of people in a really meaningful, concrete way. That is excellent. Um, a, a number of, of US technology companies, you know, Facebook and Google and, and, and um, and Microsoft and, and others, they took cybersecurity steps in terms of helping to secure individual Ukrainians and their data from exploitation um, that rivals or surpasses anything that our intelligence community was doing. Um, the, there's, a, there's a number of things that aren't publicly known, but, but one of the things that is publicly known is the Microsoft, uh, you know, Microsoft put out this report on what they have seen and, and, and what they have learned in the wake of Ukraine. And it's fascinating and it's important. And um, I think these companies, I think what Russia has done is it's taken what was previously kind of a theoretical conversation between government and industry about, their, about industry's growing influence and import on geopolitical matters. And it presented it in a very crystallizing, clear way that was concrete where people started making choices. And they have realized that, uh, sorry, they being industry has realized that they've worked very, very hard to have global influence. But with that influence has come responsibilities. And whereas in the past, they've been trying to hold those responsibilities off because they're deeply complicating to business. They've realized, I think, or they are realizing that there is no way forward where they get to avoid those challenges. They have to adapt. They have to engage them. And um, right now, I'm, I'm encouraged by the way they're thinking about those things. Just, I'd, I'd love to tease out. I, I'm discerning a shift here towards a more realistic approach. And we stop and think, so, so you know, across the political divide in this country, there is an awareness that we have to have unity in the face of the arc of autocracy. That's helpful. We're seeing big tech work constructively in relation to Russia, as we've been saying, as an illustration of how this has changed and also of the power of the tech companies, it's worth remembering that uh, Mark Zuckerberg, the co-founder of Facebook, revealed on the Joe Rogan experience that shortly before the 2020 uh, presidential election that the FBI directed Twitter and Facebook to suppress the story. This is pretty amazing about the potentially damaging contents of Hunter Biden's laptop computer. Twitter completely banned the New York Post story, uh, while Facebook, uh, Zuckerberg candidly admitted, made the story very hard to find on its platform. So you've seen, you know, th these are reflective of the concerns that I think a lot of people have had. Where do the loyalties of these companies lie? You're painting a picture now of a coming together 
in a more realistic attitude in relation to to our democratic interests, our freedoms. That's encouraging for you, I take it? Uh, so two things. So the short answer is, is I do think over the course of time, we're moving in the right direction. I can give a couple of examples of, I'm not Pollyannish. I'm not just choosing to believe that. I, I think there are real trends that I observe that cause me to believe that. Um, but let, let's take an example of why this is sometimes hard. Uh, I'll take your example of, of what Zuckerberg recently said about the New York Post article on, on Hunter Biden when he was on the, the Joe Rogan show. <clears throat> so I, you know, you and I currently are talking about kind of big hand wave mm. geopolitical yep. kind of currents. That's right. That of course is incredibly made more complicated um, by domestic politics. Of course, tech plays a huge part in that and growing civil distrust of these companies make the type of cooperation that I'm advocating for more difficult. An example. So, um, what, what Zuckerberg actually told Rogan was that um, during the 2020 election period, the FBI had come to Facebook and said, listen, we saw a lot of Russian disinformation and propaganda in the run-up to the 2016 election. We are anticipating more of that in this election. In fact, there's some intelligence that suggests that some might be coming soon. And the only instruction that the FBI gave Facebook was, so be diligent. Um, now, to put in a moment, we'll unpack what that, what that meant. But one thing that I have the privilege of knowing is I was in the United States intelligence community when Facebook and these other social media companies kind of came into being. And I remember, because I was a part of these conversations, the United States government was going to these companies and the whole idea of content moderation came from our engagement with them where we said, you have terrorists on your platform mm -hmm. who are recruiting yep. and spreading propaganda and you need to cut that out. That I think falls well within a reasonable expectation of a government and industry engagement. But that's where content moderation comes from, is the government saying, we have a terrorism problem, they're leveraging your platform, help us fix that problem. Okay. Well. This is what the FBI and the government was doing uh, in, in the 2016 and 2020 election. We have a foreign propaganda and foreign influence problem. We're asking you to be diligent and to help us figure that out. And then we turned it over to them in terms of how they go about doing that. Because ultimately, they're a private entity. The platform is theirs. They have a freedom of speech right under our constitutional system. And so the government did not dictate to them what they should and shouldn't do. They just said, we think you have a responsibility, please be careful. And that, that is illustrated by the fact that you had two different responses, one from Twitter and one from Facebook. Twitter decided, in the case of this um, uh, Hunter Biden story, that, okay, we're not going to allow people to share it on our platform. Now, they talked about having a, a, a policy about um, when people get doxxed or when their personal information is being shared without their permission, they shut that kind of stuff down. I think that's an arguable policy. Um, but regardless, they made a decision that we aren't going to allow our users to share this news story at all. Facebook chose a different path. And you have to understand Facebook has kind of two categories. There's what they call the news feed. That's what Facebook serves up to you based upon your user needs and experiences and preferences. So 
it's surfacing news and information that they think you'll like. The other side is, is how I engage with, with my followers. So if you and I followed each other on Facebook, I'm not on Facebook, but if, if we did, then there's what you and I do. So those are kind of two categories. What Facebook did with the Hunter Biden story is it, um, it, it constrained the spread of that story on the newsfeed. But you and I could share that with anybody we wanted to without any frustration or, or, or difficulty. So I could, example, go to the New York Post, copy a link to that article, post it on my feed so that everybody who's connected to me would see it, and then they could share it with whomever they liked. But what the, the newsfeed algorithm wasn't going to take that article and kind of pass it along the way it might some other stories. Regardless of how you feel about that or the goodness or badness of, of, of that choice, my point in drawing this all up is, is that that's an example of an issue that's actually more complicated right. and nuanced than the way it's discussed. But because it's discussed in a simplistic and often in service of a political narrative one way or the other, for or against whoever you're identifying as the enemy, it complicates immensely this broader conversation of cooperation that I'm trying to have. Because if you believe that the tech titans are systematically and routinely trying to suppress freedom of speech, manipulate the American people, lie, cheat, and steal, well, you're not going to be able to, you're not going to feel a, a level of, um, certainly not gratitude, uh, and, and certainly not um, a, a, a benefit of the doubt that's going to be required as we kind of figure out this cooperative process. So the problem itself is hard. On top of that, you have these companies who have, without a doubt, acted foolishly and arrogantly, who are, in, in many cases, trying to um, enforce a worldview that many Americans reject. Um, it, and, it, and it's difficult because in the past, if a company had a policy that you know, they were going to feel that one way or another about some social issue, that's kind of what they did in, within the, the four walls of their building and it didn't touch anybody. But when Facebook makes a decision uh, about these things, it touches a couple billion people. And that's just new. And that's, that's, that's a, a peculiarity that we're wrestling through. So a listener would misunderstand me if they thought I was giving a pass to these companies or if they believed I thought that they were somehow just misunderstood. I don't think that's the case. What I am saying, however, is that we have very large and important issues that we need to solve. And by talking about particularly domestic issues with these companies in simplistic and in, frankly, dishonest, even if it's un unintentionally so, ways, it makes that broader conversation much more difficult and much more slow. And uh, I don't think we can afford that. We've seen the tech companies behave in a way that's impressed us and relieved us, I think, in relation to Ukraine. Where will they sit with China? It's more complicated. You know, they've got massive investments there. Um, you wrote recently that Microsoft uh, has enormous amount of business that they do in China, but they're not paid for a lot of it. <laughs> it must be a very complex set of relationships. Can, can help us unpack uh, where we go. Uh, in relation to China and and this fusing in our system between government and big tech and very wealthy individuals who are global players. 
Uh, okay, so I'll set the scene and then I'll try and pull some of those individual strings perhaps. Um, when we think about China, I, I, I tend to think of China as being in one sense, like every nation in the history of the world in that, yep. it is trying to amass geopolitical influence to pursue its own interests. Uh, I think this is a rational way of, of operating in the international system, and, and China is not unique in, the, in, in that it seeks to do that. I think China has also uh, rightly concluded, much as the United States has, that to amass and to wield that influence uh, going forward means leading in a couple of key emerging technologies, things like artificial intelligence and uh, biotechnologies and advanced robotics and things like that. I think that's right. I think, I think that is what future leadership is going to require. Um, but the difference is, is that in the West, we are pursuing a type of voluntary cooperation, as I've been talking about, between industry and government and, and, and the citizenry. We're, we're appealing to one another based on, on shared interests and mutual benefit. And it's not compulsory. And that's why it's messy, and that's why it feels slow, uh, because it's not compulsory, and that's the way it should be. In China, however, uh, the, the Chinese government has a broader aim than just kind of influence and, and surviving. I think the Chinese government is actually trying to pioneer a new model of governance where they marry up the economic um, productivity of their form of, of and wealth of their form of managed capitalism with the stability and strength of totalitarianism. And I think they understand technology be, technology to be the, the, the essential variable in realizing both of those aims. And because of their system of government, because the first, second, and third priority of the Chinese Communist Party or the CCP is its own stability, they, they cannot and will not embrace the type of free market, liberal democratic government system that we have embraced. I think they could, I don't think they will. Um, and so, whereas we lean on economic dynamism and creativity, they are, um, they are using a, a doctrine which they actually call civil military fusion. And that is where the government co-ops its industry and uses industry as an, as an extension of the state. Let me give you a concrete example of that. That's kind of all theory. Mm. Concrete example. Um, I imagine most of, of, of viewers of this conversation will be familiar with Huawei, which yep. is a Chinese telecommunications company that was um, uh, the world's largest provider of fifth generation wireless networks, 5G. Australia was the first country in the world. That's exactly right. No. Exactly right. Um, well, that is an example of the type of civil military fusion I'm talking about. So what happened was, uh, over the course of a decade or so, um, Huawei built real technology. It, it, its 5G networks were real. I mean, they're, they're decent. They're good. They, they worked. Um, but one, they developed them by stealing intellectual property from around the world. Telecommunications company in the United States, in Britain, in Australia, elsewhere. Uh, and that's how they built their technology base for these 5G networks. But then the Chinese government subsidized Huawei so that it could then go around the world offering to build these networks at a third of the cost of anybody else. What that allowed Huawei to do is to proliferate significantly its footprint globally. And then the Chinese government's idea 
was then as these networks proliferate and become present and take a hold in these other countries, we will then leverage those networks as a means of espionage. So all of the information, all the bits and bytes that travel over those networks by law now uh, are made available to the Chinese government. And so you, you see how government and industry worked cooperatively. The, 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 the government subsidized Huawei so that it could then kind of grow its footprint. Huawei then used that large footprint to bring data back to the Chinese government and also to buy economic influence and geopolitical influence and all kinds of other things. Um, that is just an example of a much broader strategy of how the CCP thinks about and leverages its, its entire economy and particularly its technological industry. And immediately to me begs the question, have we woken up? Hmm. Are we now finding ways to stop them stealing our technology? Yeah. No. Uh, so we are- To slow it? We're getting there. Right. And, and I, I realize I failed to answer part of your question about how tech is organizing on China. So I want to come back to that. But to answer this question immediately, um, we are becoming more aware, um, but the size of the problem and, and the potential for economic disruption of actually addressing the problem the way I think it demands, I think scares a lot of, frankly, politicians. Mm. Um, it will be um, hugely disruptive. There's no way around that. Um, and we, I think, have to remember that we are in this scenario not by our choice, but by China's choice. China is choosing to operate this way. China is choosing this, this doctrine or this strategy of civil military fusion. And we, it, it is certainly not the case that, that the West has not made attempt after attempt after attempt to, to move them toward a more mutually beneficial posture, one where we can both thrive. My problem is not with an economically thriving China. I, I would love for the Chinese people to, to thrive economically because I think we can do that together. But I am not willing to cede the security and the economic prosperity of my people so that they can do that. And right now, the model they insist on using requires that. And so I'm on, I'm, I'm, I won't do that. Um, okay, so that then brings me back to your, your previous question about how can we trust tech to respond to China you know, vis-a-vis -vis the way they've responded to, to Russia. Because we obviously need their engagement. Without a doubt. They have the capacity to uh, help companies and individuals and governments to recognise, firstly, they've been the subject of an attack uh, and, uh, uh, you know, to stealing of, 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 of material and information, but also then presumably to give them the tools to try and stop it or protect themselves. Yep. Uh, so a couple of things are true all at once. Uh, one, the, technolo the technology industry has deep ties to China yeah. and dependencies on China. Yeah. Um, everything from you know, materials to actual talent. Uh, the, the United States, for example, is not producing the level of, of, of technological talent necessary to meet our own needs, let alone the needs of the world. And, and, and China is producing a lot of engineers, and, and there's no doubt that that um, the, the human capital pipelines from China are, are essential. So that, that's a challenge. There's another aspect of this though too, isn't there? Is there not, and any company that's active in China is subject to Chinese law, they therefore have to surrender into, or the Chinese siphon off right. all the information that they're gathering and what have you while ever they're active in their Chinese economy. Yep, so over the last several years, a number of things have happened that ha are beginning, I think, to change 
the Western industry's calculus on operating in China. One of which is what you've described. So um, under Xi Jinping, um, a number of laws have been enacted that require complete and total capitulation in terms of data access. Um, this is a, a national security law. It's a, a number of cybersecurity laws and, and the way they've been amended over the last several years that require that uh, every Chinese gov or excuse me, every Chinese company operating in China or anywhere else in the world, including a subsidiary. So you take like a Chinese company like ByteDance, their subsidiary TikTok is equally um, required under these laws to provide every bit and byte of data that they collect, that they store, that transits their network, or that in any other way touches what they're doing. It must be made available. There is no get out of jail free card. There is no denying that anyone who doesn't do that doesn't stay in business very long. So that's every Chinese company, no matter where they operate. Those same requirements apply to every foreign company operating inside China. Um, so previously, you would take a large company um, operating in China and they would use certain networking strategies or virtual private networks like encryption and other technologies to try and hide um, or prevent the Chinese government from accessing certain information. Um, in 2019, I believe, or it may have been 220, uh, they passed a law, uh, the Chinese government passed a law that made that type of networking strategy and those types of uh, encryption capabilities illegal. So you can technically have encryption, but only up into a certain level and no level that the Chinese government can't crack, essentially. So at the end of the day, by law, the Chinese government gets everything. And companies uh, by that same law are required not to admit that. Okay, so that's one of the key dynamics that has changed. Up until that point, a lot of Western companies thought, okay, the, the loss of intellectual property and having to comply with Chinese law, that's just the cost of doing business, but the market is so great and the economic upside is so significant that it's worth kind of paying that tax. I think with the enactment of these laws and with the growing um, crackdown by the CCP against non-Chinese tech companies, the, the economics are changing and it's causing um, these companies to, to, to reevaluate. And then on top of that, you have the geopolitical situation where you have the United States and China, obviously, and not in any way changing anytime soon, moving toward um, a more confrontational posture. And then things like the disruption, the supply chain disruptions that came with COVID-19. That was a real wake up call uh, as well. So we've had a couple of of key variables that have occurred over the last three years, frankly, that are causing people, to, uh, the, the tech industry specifically, to reevaluate. And then I'll, I'll give a, a concrete example and then I'll stop talking. Um, it was reported widely in the United States several years ago that Google was reconsidering um, opening its business practices in, in China. It was going to do search. It was going to do a, a number of different things. <clears throat> and when that leaked, there was a, a huge outcry uh, about it. Um, and um, about 4,000, uh, or excuse me, um, uh, several thousand Google employees organized and said, we don't, want to, we don't want to do this in China. And about that time, Google had opened up a brand new artificial intelligence research center in, in Beijing. 
Concurrently, Google withdrew from a contract with the United States Department of Defense called Project Maven, where it was helping do some artificial intelligence research, saying that working with the US government um, was, was violating its, its AI principles. So it's taking these two strange actions. It's increasing or considering increasing its presence in China and decreasing its, its willingness to work with US government. Well, that clearly sent a message here in the United States and, and I'm on record and publicly chastised them for both of those decisions. Okay, as a, as, as a demonstration of how things have changed, in just the last year and a half, Google has canceled all plans to do business in China. It has closed that artificial intelligence research center in Beijing, and it is now actively pursuing and winning U.S. defense and government cloud contracts. And I think that's an exemplar of how one, industry, one, one major industry player is recognizing that the situation on the ground has changed, that frankly, they're going to have to choose a flag because of the way primarily China is, is operating. And I think that's an example of one company who has made its choice. And uh, I, that is one of the reasons why I, I feel a certain level of optimism about how that industry is ultimately going to react. Perhaps they're responding to the, uh, the Kissinger dictum that a little trade lost can be recovered somewhere, freedom lost cannot be regained. Well, I, I think that's exactly right. Mm. But, doing, but again, taking an action on China similar to what we did with Russia is a different thing altogether. Yeah. The, the, the choice to act against Russia by industry wasn't nearly as costly mm. as what, what China right. would be. Yeah. And then the same thing applies to, to Western governments. Western governments, particularly our friends in, in Europe, um, are not gonna be nearly as quick and decisive and you know, aggressive in their response to, to China as, as they there have There are Russia. still European countries considering allowing Huawei into their communications networks because they're so cheap right now. Yeah, and they must be aware that's right. that that simply means all their data and their citizens' data goes straight to Beijing. But see, that's, that goes to my point about um, and that also risks their relationships with the United States, I would have thought. It, it absolutely does. Yeah. Um, but see, that goes to my point about kind of the, the domestic political conversation having an unfortunate shaping of, of the geopolitical one. So in the case of, of Europe, um, frankly, um, much of Western Europe missed the first kind of technological revolution economically. They, they frankly, they, they, the, they set up regulatory environments that choked and killed their technological industry, their innovation industry, so that there isn't anything of real significance there. And they missed all the economic and technological mm. benefits that came with that. They, they regulated first and asked questions later and they killed it. And I think a lot of politicians are also in, 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 in Western Europe are struggling with the reality that for a generation or so, they have promised cradle to grave entitlements and they failed to deliver. And by failing to deliver the legitimacy of their governments, has eroded in the minds of their own people. And so they're now in a position where in the near term, they want to realize the benefits of the technological revolution that's going on. And they want things like 5G so that they can build the next generation of the economy. But they can't do it on their own because they don't have the industrial base to support it. And here comes China and they yeah. offer the solution on the cheap. And they say, we can do it for a third of the cost. Mm -hmm. And for a politician who's only thinking in the short term and only thinking about domestic, the idea of not taking that deal 
that's being offered by Beijing and telling their constituencies yet again, we're going to miss these opportunities, that's just not viable for them. They, they, they won't do it. And so when they are confronted by their intelligence services or by their cybersecurity personnel about all, or the United States government, for example, about all of the bad deals that they're going to be making and, and what that's going to mean for them from a national security perspective, it is often very difficult for a politician to make that long-term trade that's very hard to defend and explain to your constituency uh, and forego the very near-term, real, perceived economic benefits in the short term. Um, but that is precisely what they ought to do. And um, I, one of the things that I advocate in the context of the United States is that we think more carefully about how we can make it easier for our partners and allies to make that decision. Not just in terms of understanding the challenge, but creating pathways, partnerships between our nations so that they can absorb those costs uh, in a way that's perhaps less disruptive and that allows them to, to think in a more long-term perspective and, and, and do those things well. And I, again, I think that's what we're in the middle of. I think the United States is, is in the middle of trying to figure out what does it look like to be a better friend to our, to our partners, to help enable them to make some of those decisions. Um, because, you know, there's not always a, a good viable alternative to Huawei, at least not one that's turnkey. And it's going to be, again, you know, two-thirds more expensive. So none of these things, while I think the principles are pretty clear in my mind, the solutions and how we kind of realize those principles, that's hard stuff. Uh, and I'm, I'm, anyone who pretends that this is easy, um, I think either misunderstands or is, you know, at risk of, of deceiving. Um, but the difficulty and the complexity can no longer be an excuse for an action. We have to act. We have a peer competitor on the global stage who seems intent on imperiling our citizens and our interests. And as much as I wish that were not to be the case, and as many alternatives as I can think that we might be able to pursue that would allow us to be mutually um, thriving, Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party seem intent on not choosing any of those alternatives. And so we must prepare. And so that is at the heart of my advocacy and my scholarship. There are two big questions that arise out of what you've just uh, rounded out there in my mind that I'd like to explore. We could talk all day, but you've been very generous already. Firstly, this sort of escalating uh, pattern of cyber attacks out of China raises a very real question about uh, those capabilities being used as instruments of war. The real possibility that, uh, for example, it seems Beijing could launch some horrendous series of cybersecurity attacks on America uh, before they moved on a Taiwan that could be unpredictable and might be devastating. Do you see that as a possibility? I think you've been writing about it. Can you just give us your thoughts? Well, certainly a possibility. So in terms of capability, the, Ch the Chinese government has the ability to conduct um, massive, uh, destructive, um, cyber attacks virtually anywhere in the world, particularly in the United States. And, and this has actually been publicly testified to uh, in our Congress by uh, our Director of National Intelligence, uh, our Director of, of the National Security Agency, all both of whom have said publicly that um, the Chinese government can, can uh, decisively disrupt huge portions of our critical infrastructure. And as you know, in a, in a just-in-time economy like ours, if you disrupt a, a, a logistics chain for 
a week that has cascading negative effects that can disrupt an entire economy. So chips out of Taiwan. Oh, exactly. Yep. Yep. So um, can they do it without a doubt? And and the other thing is, is our, our director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, Christopher Ray, has also publicly said multiple times that the the Chinese cyber capability um, is larger than the next five nations combined. So not only do they have a particular skill, a nuanced, sophisticated skill, but they also have the advantage of scale. They, they just have a lot of people to throw at this problem. So they could absolutely conduct an operation against the United States or, or elsewhere, whether it be in support of a Taiwan operation or, or somewhere else. Now, we also have very significant capabilities. Um, I am, you know, it, it, it's one of those things where we, you know, our, our cyber operators and our capability is, uh, is sophisticated. Including, of course, by the tech companies. Without a doubt. Um, although they don't operate on behalf of our government. No. But they defend their own networks, right? But incredibly sophisticated, incredibly capable, um, and, and, and amazing. But when we talk about cyber war, um, there's, a, there's a couple of things that, maybe two points I'll make. One, um, I don't think that we'll ever have a pure cyber war. In other words, yeah. a, a place where it's only cyber yeah. and a war is somehow fight online. But I do think that cyber is now so developed and sophisticated that virtually every conflict along the scale of, of size mm-hmm. and intensity will involve some type of cyber capability. It's just, it's too powerful and it's too, um, it's too efficient, frankly. Um, the second thing is, is you and I in our daily lives are becoming increasingly acclimated to this idea of, of cyber threats. We're always hearing stories about some data breach or some ransomware attack or something like that. And we're, we're disassociating those things from kind of existential war. But something that is not always fully appreciated is, is um, when we think about cyber espionage, so the fact that the Chinese are in our networks now watching. Well, in the cyber world, if you're able to observe, you're one keystroke away from being able to attack. And so traditional military planning and, and, and response is predicated on this notion of indications and warning. And so, you know, we see missiles being fueled and we see tanks being moved and we see ships being positioned. Well, in the case of cyber, you don't see the finger hovering before it hits the key. And so there's a dramatic reduction in the indications and warning of, of a cyber attack. And that's one of the things uh, that we are, are trying to address. We do that in the United States through something called um, forward defense, uh, where we're essentially in the bad guys' networks, watching them prepare cyber attacks before they occur, and then trying to mitigate those. So anyways, all that to say, um, cyber warfare is here to stay. It's gonna be prevalent, regardless of the scale of conflict. And uh, it will certainly feature heavily, I think, in any attack or in in any um, confrontation that may occur between the United States and China. Well, now to dock the ship, uh, in everything that you've said and presented today, you are plainly in the best American tradition, recognising the leadership role that America has played, does play, and you're indicating should play in the future. Uh, As somebody from who's not American, uh, I note with and has a great interest in history, a little bit of an inclination in some of your people, perhaps even most on the conservative end of the thing, to say maybe America should just withdraw, the rest of the world doesn't seem to appreciate it, 
if I were an American, I'd feel a bit like that myself sometimes. But that strikes, uh, you know, a pretty chilling note. I hear Tucker Carlson sort of uh, wandered down that line a bit. Let's just leave the world to themselves. Make America great again, President Trump. Uh, you sort of had the feeling that he was a bit of sick of uh, America leading the world. He thought perhaps he could retreat. That's plainly worrying to freedom lovers in the rest of the world who think it through. And you're taking the, uh, the you know, the more traditional American position. Mm -hmm. I think that America has a critical role to play. The world needs to be a safe place, and. Uh, Without the Americans, it won't happen. Leadership is always more fun when the people you're leading are happy to be led yeah. and appreciate you. Um, and I have a certain empathy and, and sympathy with those who get frustrated with particularly kind of the, the, the moral lecturing from partners and allies who, frankly, are only experiencing the level of, um, of success and, 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 and freedom and prosperity that they are precisely because of the security umbrella, particularly that the United States has provided them for several decades. That's and, right. And when that feels like that's it's not- It's not well enough understood. Can that's I right. say that? Well, it, I, just keeping trade routes open. Well, in, in the context of Australia, I, I would actually put Australia, and I, I take your point, Australia is on the, on the, like, on the side of the ledger that, that is more appreciative generally, you know, relative to some of our, our Western European yeah. partners. Um, and um, yeah, it, again, I do understand the feeling within the American populace of being frustrated when we're spending our blood and treasure securing a global order that has redounded to the benefit of the overwhelming majority of people within that order. And yeah, it would be nice to get a thank you. And, and it's made even more- Including in China, I would say. Without a doubt, without a <laughs> That's doubt. That's the supreme irony. Of That's this. right. And it would be nice to not be lectured to by individuals uh, residing underneath that umbrella about you know whether we're war you know being called warmongers or or you know unjust or you know whatever the the kind of uh, the critique of the day is. Um, nevertheless, while that would be ideal and preferred, um, my leadership or, or the leadership of the United States cannot be contingent upon the thanks of those whom we're leading. We lead because we generally do have a benevolent attitude toward our fellow man and fellow nations, but we're not only leading out of a sense of benevolence. We have real material interests in securing the international system that we helped to create and it has been to our benefit to see that system grow and thrive. Now, individuals, you mentioned one, I'll call him an entertainer, uh, who has uh, you know, talked about withdrawing. Um, this, within, within foreign policy circles, this is often called the restraint argument. And there are some people who argue for restraint who are very serious, thoughtful scholars. I disagree with them, but they make a serious argument. Tucker Carlson is not one of those people. Um, and, and even those who, who try to mount serious arguments struggle to practically um, employ policies when it comes to the real world. They do, they do foreign policy in a laboratory where they think that, well, we'll just recede into our own boundaries and we will just thrive. We'll focus on domestic renewal and we'll let the world burn 
if that's what the world wants to do. And we're not going to spend our blood and treasure trying to fix that. Okay, rhetorically, I can see some of the appeal there. The problem is, is that our domestic renewal is inextricably tied to geopolitical peace and prosperity. We have, we have, a, we have a globalized economy. Now, they would say that shouldn't be the case. Well, there's lots of things that shouldn't be, but they are, and there's no ruling them back, right? Now, we can right-size that, and I think that's happening. I think we're adjusting some of those economic ties. But at the end of the day, um, no matter how restrained you are, let's take Russia, for example. Maybe you think we shouldn't be engaged in, in Ukraine. Maybe a restraint argument is we should not be engaged in restraint or in, in, in Russia and Ukraine's fight. Well, okay, but Vladimir Putin has made it very clear, abundantly clear, that if left unchecked, he's not stopping at Ukraine. He has a worldview about the Russian-speaking peoples across Europe. And without a doubt, if he were allowed to roll through Ukraine unstopped and unhindered, he would then be moving into boundaries with our NATO partners for whom we have um, uh, agreements and responsibilities to protect. And so no matter how restrained you are, eventually threats come that bump into that and you have to make choices. And I would argue that engaging in, in Ukraine now and helping them fight their fight against Russia is much more cost-effective, much less destabilizing, and much less awful than what would inevitably follow if we didn't. Now, good, well-meaning people can disagree on how that's best done and to what degree and what levels and all that. That's all fine. Those are good, hard debates. But what I find people like the person you mentioned tend to do is they speak in these simplistic platitudes that ignore reality and that pretend that the world is a way that it simply isn't. And while that makes for good TV rating, it's a terrible way to lead the nation and it will only set up a, a, free, a free people for disappointment and ultimately um, erode their security in I think a way that is unconscionable uh, and in a way that I certainly could never be a part of. Clom, thank you. And here's to human flourishing and structures that work for the pursuit of happiness. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you. You've been listening to Conversations with John Anderson. For further content, visit johnanderson.net.au. Thank you.